2: Tuesday morning, the 12th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. One of uh, the most complicated things uh, that will happen over the course of uh, the next few weeks will be the annual trip around the world on Christmas Eve by Santa Claus and his reindeers taking a sleigh full of presents to the homes of all of the children in the world. Can you imagine how difficult it is to find all of uh, the children when there's almost a billion children in every corner of every country in this world. That's why Santa asks all of the boys and girls to write their letters to them so he has their most up-to-date addresses. This year, almost 4,000 children won't have an address in Ireland. They are among the 14,000 people or so who are in emergency accommodation. No doubt Santa will use all of his powers to find out where every child is living, but how do the rest of us grapple with our conscience this Christmas as we celebrate the? season of peace and goodwill to all men as we enjoy the pleasures of the festive season, content at home with the people we love. Why are we not able to prevent this from happening? Why can we not distribute the great wealth that we have in this country in a way that would ensure that no child is forced into homelessness? Or do we have choices? Is this challenged to provide housing for all so great that we have to accept that realistically, thousands of unfortunates must be left out in the cold. Well no, Sinn Féin says yes there are choices, that this situation should never have been allowed to get as bad as it is this Christmas and that we can choose now to stop people from becoming homeless, that's if we stop them from being evicted. Ono Bryn, Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing joins us now. And A very good morning to you Ono Bryn, thanks for joining us on the programme once again. You're going to uh, introduce legislation to the Dáil today, uh, which would see uh, an immediate return of a temporary ban on no-fault evictions, uh, and that would uh, be the upshot of that. Uh, I don't think that would stop anybody from becoming homeless before Christmas, though, but perhaps uh, going into the new year, it might change things for people.
1: Well, no, in fact, the intention of the bill um, is to have it enacted before Christmas. uh, And from the day it would be enacted and signed into law by the president, uh, no evictions where the tenant had done nothing wrong could occur. Uh, We've deliberately used the the legislation that the government themselves introduced last year. But then that would allow us to expedite it through the Oireachtas speedily this week. Um, And there's no reason why, if the government were of a mind to support this, it couldn't be signed into law next week. We have never had as many people in emergency accommodation. You mentioned the figure of 4,000 children. When Fine entered office in 2011, there was just over 600 children in emergency accommodation. So the the, the scale of the increase in the last 12 years is staggering. Um, uh, And uh, we have taken the view that, first of all, uh, we need to stop on a temporary basis uh, further increases, not just in child homelessness, but in adult homelessness and in pensioner homelessness. But crucially, uh, that temporary ban on evictions where tenants have done nothing wrong uh, is only to give a pause to allow government to take the kinds of emergency actions that we have been urging them to do for a number of years. And so far, they have failed to do a ban on evictions in and of itself doesn't fix anything. Mm -hmm. It just slows the process down. And it really is then uh, proceeding with those emergency interventions to reduce the flow of individuals and families into emergency accommodation, Mm -hmm and speed up the exit of people in emergency accommodation into permanent homes.
2: But it could be adopted, enshrined and enacted in the course of a couple of weeks, effectively. Uh, I mean, that is unheard of. That would be really fast-track legislation, uh, emergency type of legislation.
1: Well, first of all, this isn't new legislation. This is identical to the legislation government introduced last year, uh, and there was full scrutiny of that. So the, the, the value of the approach we're taking is we've already gone through the detail of this. Uh, but also it's not unheard of at the end of a Dáil term uh, uh, for government to bring forward legislation, very often not of emergency nature, and pass it through the Doll in a number of, of short days. I suppose the issue here is, is, do we think that 4,000 children in emergency accommodation is an emergency warranting emergency action? I believe it is. Uh, and if we can stop any further families with children, any further pensioners going into emergency accommodation, from the period of the enactment of this bill, which could be next week, not just over Christmas, but into January, February, March and April, as the bill proposes. I think, first of all, uh, uh, that would be of enormous benefit to those individuals. But crucially then, government could take the kind of steps that they have so far failed to take to really get to grips with this homelessness crisis. It is not acceptable. Month after month after month, the number of people in emergency accommodation uh, relentlessly rises. Not a single measure in the government's budget 2024 to tackle this ever-increasing homeless crisis. We tabled a set of proposals in our alternative housing budget published in September, and then again in October. Other organisations, charities, and frontline homeless service providers have done likewise. But what we have to accept as a society is that it's not acceptable. As we approach christmas in the new year for those numbers to continue to rise Mm. and that's why we've tabled this legislation uh, tonight for debate and vote tomorrow
2: and and do you believe that people will be evicted over the course of uh, the next couple of weeks young or old
1: yeah so generally what happens in the run-up to christmas is is there is a slowdown in the number of people who present seeking emergency accommodation Uh, but there will be people seeking emergency accommodation There, there is no doubt about that I was talking to homeless service providers in the Dublin region uh, uh, last week and they've actually provided some additional capacity in terms of beds as they do every winter because they are expecting an increase in numbers. My colleagues have been talking to homeless service providers across the state and unfortunately some areas like Limerick City and Galway City are already at full capacity and may not be able to take anybody else. Uh, So unfortunately, yes, um, while Mm. good landlords, and there are many of them, Tend uh, uh, to give people uh, some additional breathing space themselves. Uh, there will be people who will present, seek emergency accommodation, uh, and go into hostels, B and B's, and hubs over the coming weeks.
2: It's oh, really this legislation hard, it? mm. Really is a, a hard situation for people to find themselves in at this time of the year.
1: It is, and and look, the, the, the central responsibility for this crisis uh, lies with the government. Uh, there are many landlords out there who want to sell their property; they're mm. approaching pension age, and uh, they're seeking to 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 get their pension some investment. Others just don't want to be landlords anymore. In some cases, people need the property for their own use. Uh, it, it is the failure of government to provide an adequate supply of social affordable homes yeah. year after year that is at the centre of this. And that's why, while the, the ban on uh, no-fault evictions, on evictions where the tenant has done nothing wrong, mm. is only a temporary emergency measure, it really is, for example, about using emergency planning and procurement powers and vacant derelict homes and new building technologies to have a dedicated supply of accelerated mm. social housing delivery for people in emergency accommodation, but also having a greater focus on preventative strategies as well. Uh, because ultimately, the cause of this crisis is a government whose social and affordable housing targets are too low. Mm. And in every single year, Darrell Bryan has been minister his failure to meet those targets. So the ban on evictions where the tenant has done nothing wrong I'm sure everybody is
2: more important. Okay, I'm sure everybody is familiar with the arguments at this stage they have been well rehearsed. Uh, That's what you say. Uh, The government says uh, that your ban would actually make it worse, uh, that you're opposed to many of the measures that are providing housing for people, that they're going to deliver more housing than 1975 or whatever year it is uh, that they tend to quote under these circumstances and that uh, If uh, they are allowed to get on with their housing for all plan uh, without objections to planning uh, from parties like Sinn Féin, uh, perhaps we wouldn't have so many people in this situation. Uh, There's another argument that's being put forward as well, and we're hearing it a a lot on the phones, um, that uh, we have so many people homeless in this country because of the amount of refugees and asylum seekers coming here. Is there any truth in that at all, do you think?
1: No, there isn't. And look, I, I, I understand you know, some of the concerns that I hear out in the constituency, but people need to be very clear. The temporary accommodation that's provided for people seeking international protection or for Ukrainians under the temporary protection directive is not mainstream housing. It's not social housing, it's not private rental housing. Um, uh, 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 it is of a completely separate order. Uh, the reason why we have more and more people becoming homeless is because of a failure of government to deliver an adequate supply of social and affordable homes. The two issues are are completely separate. Uh, obviously, the government's reliance on hotels to provide temporary accommodation has created some uh, issues in some areas where hotel accommodation that may have been used traditionally for people experiencing homelessness uh, uh, is now being proposed for, for uh, temporary accommodation for people uh, uh, seeking international protection or temporary protection. But actually, in the main, to date, government has kept the two uh, streams separate, temporary accommodation uh, on one side and housing on the other, I am concerned that the paper going into cabinet today where they're talking about new arrivals from Ukraine will only get temporary accommodation for 90 days and then will have to leave and reassume go into the private rental sector. That is a very significant shift in government policy. It's one that won't work uh, because there isn't private rental to go into, but it also confuses the stream of temporary accommodation from permanent housing in the mainstream housing system and on that basis Mm. we're asking government to reconsider that proposal
2: okay if somebody arrives today um are they going to be able to find somewhere to live in in march or april
1: Uh, in terms of uh, uh, renting somewhere
2: if a ukrainian refugee arrives in this country after 90 days yeah
1: well well, first of all it's not completely clear what's going to judging by, by media leaks. So there seems to be some indication that it, it, it's not that they're changing the rules from now, but they're proposing to change the rules in the first quarter of next year, the exact thing. we don't know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but what I would say to people is there are already 5,500 people, adults and children, who have been through our direct provision system and who have been granted the leave to remain. They have been mm. given status, but they can't get out of direct provision because of the crisis in the private rental sector. So what that tells us is having a 90-day limit on temporary accommodation and then pushing those people into the mainstream housing system can't work, Mm. won't work, and is the wrong approach. And therefore... We'd like to see the detail of the government's proposals, but on the basis of what we've heard at the moment, we're very, very concerned.
2: Yeah, and I uh, uh, go back to the last question and your answer uh, that people coming to this country don't impact on the housing needs of people who were born here. Uh, and that's a, a point that we've been trying to make uh, till we've been blue in the face uh, on this programme over the course of uh, the last week, because you know yourself, uh, people have made up their mind on this issue, and if they believe that it are impacting on housing or health or crime or whatever it is well then that's what they believe and they're not going to be told otherwise Uh, but uh, I mean you're reinforcing that point today O'No Bryn, as somebody who holds a a lot of respect because of the knowledge that you have uh, on housing and the housing crisis and the solutions that you've brought forward but here we are entering into a a very different situation are we not and I think it's the point that you were making where refugees could actually be impacting on the needs of uh, Irish people for housing, because uh, if we get to next April, May, June, or whenever it is, when Ukrainians are uh, looking for the same apartments to rent, the same houses to rent uh, uh, as the indigenous population, if they do manage to get somewhere, if they can afford it, well, then that's somewhere less for Irish people.
1: The first thing I'd say is, is I wouldn't make this about Irish people versus people coming into international protection or temporary protection. Well, 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 I'd
2: ask you to, but, speak, to, me, to speak to our listeners. I, I, who, yeah.
1: oh, no, no, I, I absolutely will. And, and again, people have a right to ask these yeah. questions mm. and, and be given reasonable answers. What I would say, first of all, is there are many people who are legally resident in the state who might not have been born here. Uh, they're from other parts of the European Union. They're coming here on specific work visas, etc. So we have a a population of people legally resident in the state and who are seeking housing of different kinds. Some are on social housing waiting lists, some are trying to get into the private rental sector, many are trying to buy. Uh, And they're not just Irish-born. There's a whole range of people there, as you would expect. The, The point I'm making is the correct approach to those people who are coming into our country seeking international protection, very often from situations of war persecution, or those people coming in with temporary protection orders from Ukraine, is to ensure that that stream of temporary accommodation is a separate stream of accommodation from the mainstream housing system. That has been the government's approach to date, and we support that approach because that then means you're not putting additional pressure on the housing system for all those other people legally resident in the state, irrespective of where they're born. Uh, uh, My big worry with what we're hearing from Cabinet today is an unworkable proposal, in my view, whereby Ukrainians who may arrive next year after 90 days would be asked to leave to where we have no idea. First of all, these are people who wouldn't have the financial means to be able to rent in the private rental sector, given where rents are at. Even if they could uh, uh, meet the rents, there aren't the private rental uh, properties there. Uh, and by putting those people, I suppose, at the mercy of, of a private rental sector, they're adding to pressure on a sector that's already under the strain. So the government, I think, absolutely needs to rethink that proposition. Again, we wait to see the details, but... Interestingly, there's one cabinet source quoted in the newspaper today saying they don't expect after the 90 days people will be put out on the street. Well, if that's the case, then why make the proposition in the first place? Government has been very slow to put in place an adequate stream of good quality temporary accommodation for Ukrainians in particular, um, uh, uh, despite the fact that they've known for quite some time the volume of people that were likely to come here. We have people at the moment, for example, uh, international protection uh, applicants and some Ukrainians sleeping in tents in military barracks. We also have a small number of rough sleepers uh, uh, over the last number of days. That's a consequence of government's failure to plan and take advice from organisations like the Refugee Council Mm -hmm. and others. So I suppose what I'm saying is this. Right now, as it stands, the very significant increase in the number of people who have come to our country seeking protection in the last two years is not impacting on the mainstream housing crisis. That is a standalone crisis caused by government and government's failure. Uh, but I am worried if they proceed with this 90 day rule, uh, that could Have a a, a negative consequence in terms of the housing system overall, and that's one of the reasons why we're urging government to reconsider that proposition.
2: All right, Uh, somebody taxing us, uh, calling you names, Owen, which is always very unfortunate uh, when people uh, resort to name calling, and uh, we won't pass on uh, the name, I'm sure you can guess from. uh, the usual list. Uh, but they ask us to tell you, um, based on what they call you, that this is about Irish people because they say we in Ireland are talking about the homeless Irish. Uh, but uh, as you say, uh, one doesn't impact on the other and to, to suggest that that is uh, the case is conflating two separate issues. But that goes back to what I was saying to you earlier on. Uh, about can You, I, you can I, could be here can I... till you're blue in the face trying to argue that.
1: But but let me me say this, Michael, because there is a lot of genuine anger out there about our homelessness crisis. And and whatever about the individual calling me names, I I assume they are angry at people being left in emergency accommodation for a long period of time, and they're absolutely right to be angry. Uh, We set out very clearly in our alternative budget how, for example, in a single 12 month period, you could end homelessness among the over 55s and start to dramatically reduce the number of families and children in emergency accommodation. We've also argued year on year, and you, you and I have discussed this in your programme before, like Finland, we could end long-term homelessness and the need to sleep rough in a single term of government. And therefore, people are right to be angry at the scale of homelessness in our society, given the budget surpluses, given the tax revenues, given the wealth of this country. But it is not people coming to this country seeking international protection who are the cause of that homelessness crisis. It is Fianna Fáil, Fine and the Green Party. And all I would urge your listener to do is work with us who have been spending years campaigning to end the scandal of homelessness in this country. And that's homelessness among people who were born in Ireland, that's homelessness among Irish people born outside the state and have returned and are legally resident. Mm. But that's also people who weren't born in Ireland who are from other countries but are legally resident in the state and who are today homeless. And we've seen a very significant increase in the number of working families in emergency accommodation, uh, uh, including people, for example, who have come to Ireland to work in our health service to fill critical staff shortages. So, yes, we we need to keep the focus on ending homelessness. It is a scandal. Uh, But let's not pit one group of vulnerable people, the homeless, against another, those seeking international protection. Let's lay the blame for the scandal of homelessness squarely where it belongs, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party. And there are solutions, and we've articulated them year after year, to address those problems. Uh, And the sooner we have a government that does that, the better for
2: everybody. All right, listen. We leave it there for the moment. Thank you for joining us, though, this morning. As always, Ono Brinch and Fain, spokesperson on housing, for you there.
4: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
2: Yeah, somebody's uh, texting us about the leftist uni party in the doll since two thousand and four. Um, I'll read all the text uh, a little bit later. on, But I'm just, I'm just totally <laughs> bamboozled. Who are the leftist uni party in the doll since two thousand and four? I ask you. Let us know if you will. It was a rotten night, wasn't it? Uh, well, hopefully you were tucked up in your bed and uh, warm and safe. Not the case all round. Let's uh, hear from North Loud once again. Sinn councillor Anton Waters on the line. Very good morning to you, Anton, and thanks for joining us. A lot of concern after the heavy rains last night. You're meeting with council engineers at 11 o'clock today, I understand.
0: Yeah, look, Michael, probably the best time meeting I ever organised. Um, I'm going round with the uh, council flood team who deal with CIFRAM and OPW applications at 11 o'clock. And we had pinpointed a number of uh, areas that we were going to look at. And I suppose after the flooding overnight, this is, you know, even more evidence to prove that mitigation works are, or works are needed to to deal with this flooding Um as you mentioned uh, last night, was another case of out and trying to stop water getting into properties. Uh, I had a meeting in. Uh, I was at a community meeting in Omeet yesterday evening around eight o'clock, driving down the road, and I was like. This is it was serious rain, very hard to drive in, and even driving home at nine o'clock, it was still as heavy. So, it was constant rain for a couple of hours, and it led to the water again coming down off the mountain. And late last night, there was constituents in contact again who had, you know, it was get the sandbags back out again, Michael. You mm. know, it's terrible for these people. Like you're living in, they're living in fear basically. Every time there's heavy rain, you're thinking not again you know mm. this is like there's no break in it and um, like it's only a couple of weeks since the last flooding incident people are only kind of half getting over it and now we're back again in a number of different areas it's very very frustrating so okay, look,
2: not, it, it, there wasn't a case of water entering into the houses though was there
0: no, no, okay. not last night. Right. Thank okay. God people, yeah. um, but they were out like those, mm. I've, I've loads of people who are on to me and they were out mm. doing the same thing they'd done a couple of yeah. weeks ago. At their wits
2: end, yeah. yeah. And up all you night know. as well, I'm sure, and uh, uh, worn to a, 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 a thread. Um, what what, what um, will you be hoping uh, that the engineers will be able to uh, do, uh, or what they'll be able to discuss doing today? Uh, is it possible uh, to put in Um, some uh, measures uh, that will take away this constant fear every time it rains as you say
0: Yeah, look Michael that's what we need to achieve here because at the end of the day um, the, the water it's not going away this is a problem that's going to keep happening so look my aim is to try and see about we need to look at alternatives for piping this water away we can't have it run down these roads and veering off into people's properties every time you know it rains so that's my aim so we're going round and like there was 25 locations that flooded um, at the end of October so the council have been assessing these and what I want to try and get from the meeting today is what is our plan of attack to try and deal with this because yeah, you know, like, it's such a scary event. You know, Like, people are only over the last one, as I said already, and like, you're living in fear. So, oh like, what I hope is, like, there's loads of engineering solutions that we can try and achieve, and we need to look at, you know, trying to reduce the amount of water, and even, there was some suggestion made about maybe trying to get some sort of tanks to try and contain the water coming off the mountain, and try and delay the release of it to stop it coming down with such force because I'm sure you've seen the videos of the water, it's just like a river in the middle of the road mm. and you know nature, it's very hard to stop it and this is the problem so we need to try and, I think we need to try and look at every solution possible so I'm hopeful today we can put it, like start the process which is a race of it but me, my input and in trying to use the local knowledge I have to try and deal with this and again it's the homeowners who a lot of them on to me this morning who they know the local knowledge of the, of the area and where the water comes from and where it should be going and i raised it last week at the council meeting where streams have been diverted michael uh they used to go left they now go right and it's creating all the problems that come with that as well so look it is a big job of work and it's going to cost a lot of money and yeah. we need we need we need the funding I, I asked last week at the municipal meeting about an update in relation to the road restoration program like we still haven't had word back from the department like it's not good enough. Um, We had a meeting uh, where we highlighted concerns, myself and Rurio O'Murru, in relation to areas, and they did say they were going to look at drainage and all that's part of that package. That's great, but we need the money to start doing this work, Michael, and the council can't foot the bill themselves, so the pressure has to come on to try and get this done because it can't be once there's heavy rain, it's fear all the time. We needed this nip this in the bud, you know. Yeah, well,
2: undoubtedly, uh, that's the way people feel uh, that uh, when they close their door, that should be the end of it. And they shouldn't have to be getting out of bed uh, and up with sandbags and uh, all the rest of it. Uh, but uh, is it inevitable that that's going to be the case if remedial works are, are not taken?
0: Well, look, we've seen, the proof is in the pudding, we've seen it now, like it's only a couple of weeks since the last event, and here's it happening again, so look, we're saying it was a one-in-a-hundred-year event, not everyone flooded as bad as it happened at the end of October, but there's still four or five areas, Michael, so yeah, look, unless we do something about this, it's going to be a constant thing, we're only at the start of mm-hmm. the winter, we haven't even hit the bad weather yet, so your fear, your fear is, like, do people have to go through this the whole winter, and like it's a horrendous thought and um, like that's the problem I have is like these things are going to take time to sort out so we need to start as soon as possible because you know I don't know it. I, I feel so sorry for people because Uh, it's so draining. I know people who have been trying to get their properties back and trying to deal with it and then you're thinking, am I after going to have to start doing all the work again if water gets into my house? Of course you are. Mm. I know people who are sick after having dehumidifiers in their house for long periods of time. The knock-on effect of this has been run down. Um, It's just, my heart goes out to them because it's
2: just terrible, you know. Yeah, there wouldn't be um, the scope for a reservoir or something like that. I mean, when you think of all of this rain coming down out of the sky in November and December and nowhere for it to go, uh, and then come May or June, and we're crying out for water.
0: Yeah, well, that's the, what I was mentioned earlier in relation to maybe like collection tanks that can try and stop. You've seen the videos, the force of water that's coming down, Michael. If we could try and look at like a properly engineered solution um, to try and maybe catch some of that water. And then even if, as you say, maybe you could use it for for other uses, but even just to stop the initial big gush of water that's coming down obviously when it's raining for a long time it's all starting to build up and then it comes down in a force like a river so if we could try and maybe look at dealing with that at a higher level up the mountain that would give the homeowners and everyone a chance to try and you know deal with it in, in smaller amounts than the big gush that we're getting so look yeah there's there's all these things that have to be looked at but it's really just, hopefully today I can, and in fairness to the lads, they are walking through it, but we really need to see what plan we can put in place to, to get funding. Like, this will all have to be done. There'll be applications will have to be made to deal with this, Michael, as you know yourself from other yeah. projects. So it's not going to be something where it's a flick of a switch in relation to these, but it's up to me and others to keep pushing to get this done as soon as possible.
2: All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, Anton. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear more. Following your meeting with uh, those council engineers later today on LMFM's news, that's uh, Sinn Féin councillor Anton Waters. Now, I'm asking who the leftist uni party are. Uh, well, our listener has been back in touch with us. Maybe I'll read out the whole comment. Uh, they say that the primary reasons for, reason for the crisis in housing is the availability of private rental accommodation. There's a chill factor for landlords, uh, both landlords who are embedded and imminent new ones. Uh, reg- over-regulation uh, by the leftist uni party in the Dal since 2004. Landlords are fleeing the market and critically precious few new amateur landlords are replacing them. You reap what you sow. And they replied that the leftist uni party comprised of Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, the Greens, Labour, People Before Profit and the majority of the rag bag of independence. Berger Hearn started this leftist stuff with his so-called and undemocratic social partnership after you replaced Albert Reynolds 30 years uh, Finnegale followed suit thereafter thank you indeed for the explanation I'm kind of thinking <laughs> uh, should I <laughs> should I have asked should I have asked well thank you I did ask and thank you indeed uh, I'm not sure who that leaves uh, politically uh, uh, apart from uh, the leftist uni party uh, in the doll. I think that includes almost every politician and political party but thank you indeed for your message 041983 2000 is our telephone number you can text or whatsapp us on 086 email michael at lmfm.ie
4: Michael
2: Reed on LMFM. Well, thanks to Mag Y, who says Michael, homeless people, Sinn Féin will sort it. Flooding, Sinn Féin will sort it. Michael, do you think LMFM should rename your show to the Shinners Hour? Uh, Well, thanks, uh, Mag Y. Interesting question, I have to say, uh, and I wish I was able to answer it one way or the other. Um, uh, definitively uh, the answer is well there are a lot of Sinn Féin people on the programme uh, but the, that's the short answer the longer answer is is uh, quite often um, there's people from the government parties who aren't available to us now I must say in this instance today we didn't ask for a government rep to come on with us uh, Owen Brin is bringing legislation to the doll today we asked him to talk to us about his legislation quite often though uh, we would ask uh, Daryl O'Brien the Minister for Housing to come on to the programme like a, a lot of other politicians uh, since he became a minister he hasn't spoken to this programme he did speak to us occasionally before that given that he, he's relatively local in Fingal uh, but Daryl O'Brien hasn't given one interview to this programme since becoming uh, the Minister for Housing uh, I, I don't know I think it's probably because uh, he's too important uh, for LMFM I don't know but you quite often get that uh, with uh, government parties opposition Parties are are quite often the opposite in that they're looking for airtime because they're looking to promote themselves, their parties and their policies. uh, And uh, as a result of the airtime or the advertising, if you like, uh, they hope that that will help achieve that. I don't know why it is the politicians lose interest in that when they get into government, but that does seem to be the case to a certain degree. Uh, So hopefully that uh, acts as a response to you. Uh, We're happy to discuss the issues with anybody and everybody, and maybe it'll change if and when Sinn Féin do get into government. Claire and me says, Good morning, Michael. The rain last night was so bad. Our county council... don't uh, do anything about the ditches anymore for clearing water out if there's too much water on our roads it's very dangerous our council should be working together on this problem Claire says uh, an listener in touch saying Michael uh, the government could help a few hundred women and children living in hotel rooms long before Covid and uh, the war in Ukraine so the chances of or oh, they couldn't help a few hundred women and children uh, so the chances of them solving housing now is slim says our Listener in Navan. Thank you indeed. Uh, just on the issue of housing, Paddy Duffy in touch saying the mantra of more housing has been built since 1975 begs the question of which political parties. Have been in power since 1975. Thanks as always, Paddy Duffy, 0419832000. If you want to ring us, text or WhatsApp, 0861800658. Now, as you've been hearing on uh, the news bulletins uh, this morning, the Crime Victims Helpline is going to remain open throughout uh, the Christmas period. Let's speak to Michelle Puckhaber who's Chief Executive of uh, the Crime Victims Helpline. Good morning to Michelle, uh, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, There's none of our listeners uh, who would want to be calling your number over the Christmas period, but undoubtedly many of them will. You've seen a huge increase in uh, the number of people who have been contacting you in recent years, increasing year on year, I think, with over 5,000, close to 6,000 contacts uh, to the Crime Victim Helpline in 2022. Uh, And Christmas uh, should be a time of peace and goodwill to all men. But uh, I take it that there's quite a a number of problems, quite a, a lot of crime and plenty of reason for people to be calling you over Christmas
5: yeah good morning michael yeah so the national crime victims helpline uh the 116006 helpline provides you know, information and support to all victims of crime and we know that you know crime doesn't take um a break during the christmas uh season and um what we have seen is, again, a huge increase in the number of people contacting us. And we expect that to continue over, over the Christmas period.
2: Domestic uh, abuse, obviously, something that's been discussed uh, over the course of uh, this week and last week with a 16 days campaign. And we're reminded that when people are, are locked up in their houses, as was the case during COVID and as will be the case uh, over Christmas, uh, this can actually worsen the problem.
5: It can. I think that specifically when there's, again, crime in the home, um, when the home is in a safe place, you know, Christmas time isn't necessarily, um, again, like you're saying, peaceful and happy for everyone. Um, You know, and what we also see is people who have been impacted by other crimes can find this, you know, time of the year to be quite lonely um, when they can't get into the holiday, you know, spirit of things. Mm. Um, And, they can you need know, just a little bit of extra support, um, and that's what the helpline is here for.
2: Okay, right, because yeah, uh, I, I think you referred over three thousand people uh, who had contacted you in your latest report uh, to domestic violence support groups. Uh, but I was going to ask you what happens uh, when people call you if they have a problem over the Christmas year? They're just to, to support them, apart from anything else, is it?
5: Yeah, so what we do is kind of three different things. So one is we provide um, emotional support. We provide non-directive, confidential, non-judgmental listening service. So that's for people who just want to, you know, talk about how they're feeling, what's going on with them. The second thing that we do is we answer questions about the criminal justice system. So that's when people have questions about what's going to happen, what can they expect. We just answer those questions for them. And then the third thing that we do is we provide information about local victim support services as well as specialized victim support services. So those can be uh, for things like domestic violence, sexual assault. We make sure that people know about those services that are tailored to their specific situation.
2: And can you help them then through the judicial process?
5: So we can again answer questions. Um, however, there are other organizations that um, assist victims when they go to court. So there is an organization called Victim Support at Court that does great work in um, being there for victims in the courtroom, um, as well as various domestic violence and um, rape crisis uh, organizations also provide that service to victims.
2: Right. Uh, And over the many years uh, that you've been providing this service, like the world we live in, you've seen change uh, and uh, the Internet uh, is impacting on crime and the crimes uh, that occur against people for that matter.
5: Yeah. So what we've seen is a huge increase in cybercrime. So we're um, hearing a lot of people who have been scammed or defrauded um, online, People have been subject to non consensual sharing of intimate photos. So, certainly, crime hasn't gone away, but it does continue to evolve and change, unfortunately.
2: Okay, well, we hope that there's as few calls as possible, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, Somebody will fall victim to crime over Christmas, uh, but as few as possible, Michelle. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. The Crime Victims Helpline is 116006. That's 116006. It's free, or you can text 085 133 Our thanks to Michelle Puckhapper, Chief Executive of the Crime Victims Helpline.
4: Michael
2: Reed Reed on on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, COP28 should be wrapping up today. When
4: I stood here in front of you as the newly elected president, I asked you to approach this COP with a different mindset and to be cooperative. And I also asked everyone to be flexible. You showed exactly that mindset and that flexibility by taking the historic step of operationalizing the loss and damage on day one. Together we have the opportunity to deliver history again. We can send a signal to the world that multilateralism does actually work, that this process can respond to what the science is telling us, that it can deliver for the most vulnerable and keep 1.5 within reach. We need to focus everyone on closing out the toughest issues that continue to remain. I need all parties to show even more flexibility to get us to the finish line. The world is watching. Let's not rest until we get this done.
2: Right, that's the president of uh, the COP, Sultan Ahmad al jaber who has a very interesting understanding of uh, the science when it comes uh, to fossil fuels. Uh, he has since been disappointed with some very serious exception taken to the draft text uh, which should have led to the conclusion of COP28 today. Uh, but let's go to Dubai where Jerry McAvillie, Head of Policy with Friends of the Earth, Ireland is. And a very good morning to you Jerry, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That Draft text failed to commit to ending fossil fuels and that has since posed a very significant uh, problem in terms of agreeing a text.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me on. I was just thinking as you replayed the speech there that there's absolutely no sign of a changed mindset and action in line with the science from the latest texts uh, that we've seen here. So basically... At these summits, they put forward uh, updated commitments on climate action, ideally to make progress on our core uh, Paris Agreement objectives, which are uh, which are there to really prevent the worst impacts of, of the climate crisis. That's what it's all about. Mm. And the context here, there's really two parts to the context here. Number one is that uh, before the COP, it was known that the pledges, the climate action plans the countries have so far made, including Ireland, are simply insufficient to prevent these worst, worst effects. So states came here with the knowledge that they were going to have to take a different approach and that they were going to have to make significantly stronger commitments. Now, incredibly, this is the second part, fossil fuels have never been addressed sufficiently or, in, or indeed clearly at all in these climate summit um. In these climate mm. summit techs previously, so now, that's why all the focus now and it is on is on this fossil fuel language because that is the only way to bring us back in line with the 1.5 degree temperature threshold limit, the survival limit that's in the, the Paris Agreement.
2: Yeah,
3: and what what we saw yesterday, and it caused quite a lot of su- absolute surprise, shock, and real. Um, going beyond disappointment but the type of garbled list of half measures where many of the buzzwords around fossil fuels Mm. and energy were mentioned but it was essentially an optional list and just to give you you know two quick examples sure the first is that there there was no clear reference to phasing out fossil fuels which is really the, the absolute red line here there needs to be uh, clear language on phasing out fossil fuels. That wasn't there. There was uh, vague um, language around reducing fossil fuels, which isn't the same thing. But we, we were, in order to, to make progress, we actually have to be entirely phasing them out in the decades to come. And there was other confusing texts, uh, uh, which is causing major concern here in Dubai around um, abating fossil fuels and what that means in non-policy wonk speak what that means in english is
5: it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you
6: really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind
3: Entirely unproven speculative technologies in the future to capture carbon, capture the CO two, and store it. And in the view of Friends of the Earth and many others, that is simply a delaying tactic. Mm. It is it is a reliance on future technologies, which which allows or or, or nuclear. Well, nuclear is one option as well, but uh, specifically Mm. in terms of fossil fuels, it is kicking the can down the road Mm. because while Theoretically, these technologies are developed
2: fossil fuels are continuing to be, be burnt and be okay. constructed. Jerry, Jerry, you were surprised. Were you really surprised though? I, I mean, uh, maybe you'd have been surprised at, at this two or three weeks ago, but given uh, the interaction between Sultan Al-Jabbar and former Irish President uh, Mary Robinson, I, I take it uh, that you knew that whilst many came to the COP very committed uh, to ending uh, fossil fuels, uh, there were some who were very watery about it. Indeed, in that interaction Interaction With Mary Robinson, we heard Al Jaber question the science and uh, he was asking what science is there that actually proves that ending fossil fuels uh, reduces uh, climate emissions, um, which uh, obviously led to a lot of attention. But it gave us uh, 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 an insight into the thinking of the oil barons uh, and probably uh, no wonder, given that that's their business to sell fossil fuels
3: well look to a certain extent i agree i mean that the the mask really did seem to slip in that in that exchange he had with mary robinson from um, from a while back but i do think that there w- there was an expectation that states here would be coming with clear understanding that the status quo really just can't go on and it, it can't go on not least because of the, the climate emergency that's all around us but also we have to remember you know Communities, individuals are being asked to take climate action at home, rightly, to take responsibility, and yet there are governments who are essentially skirting that responsibility. They're, they're they're putting in or allowing commitments which don't really tie them to anything and which allow fossil fuels to continue to be constructed. So I think it was definitely a surprise in that context, and I guess it's maybe it's important for your listeners to understand and that, of course, there are different negotiating blocks. And as you said, you have the likes of the petro states, which is clearly this isn't in their interest. But the, the, what's been put forward so far is not sort of a on the one hand, on the other and a compromise that where you say, you know, it doesn't really suit everyone. And then therefore, that means hmm. it's the, it's progress. That is not the case. What we really have here is a complete mess of optional actions, none of which really get us to where we want to go. So uh, it, in terms of uh, the current, like what's actually happening right now is that the COP president, uh, president of this climate summit has been asked to go away and respond to the latest views of heads of state, including, you know, the likes of Minister Ryan, who said, you know, that if the text remained unchanged, the EU would have to Uh, Walk essentially. Mm. There were strong rejections by other um, country ministers as well. So he's going to have to. He's expected to produce another updated text today. And really, all eyes are on that, and the pressure is really on because we're approaching the final stages of the negotiations here.
2: All right. So if a text is agreed and. Uh, that agreement means uh, that there'll be a tangible date for ending the use of fossil fuels, whether that's 2050 or whatever the case may be. It'll be up to countries then to come back uh, and uh, to implement uh, the spirit of uh, that text in national legislation so or, or in national measures. So what does that mean? Uh, I mean, does, are we talking about uh, if a text is a grade that we'd be looking at another euro on a bag of coal or 20 euro on a, a fill of home heating oil. It 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 doesn't
3: it doesn't I guess sort of equate that that simply I mean ultimately what we're talking about here is long-term planning by states. I mean no one is going to sort of flick a switch overnight or expect that you know another euro on a bag of coal is simply going to stop the, the the oil industry overnight. What we're really talking about here, and this is the the words that many parts of civil society have been emphasising, is that we need a phase out of fossil fuels that's fair, fast, funded and forever. So by fair, it means that developed countries have to take the lead. Obviously, developing countries are in a very different position in the sense that their economies are significantly weaker and uh, they are not uh, by any stretch of the imagination bear as much responsibility as developed states like Ireland, who have really high capita permission, uh, emissions. So really, the, the onus is on Ireland so and developed states. So that's what we, what we mean by fair. And by fast, I mean that action needs to start na- now. And what do I mean by that? Like the phasing out of fossil fuels has to be put into policies, which make sure there's near term, immediate action, essentially, And that means that we can't be um, expanding the use of oil and gas. And that means not only, I'm sure, you know, your listeners would have heard in many different contexts about the development of renewables and the focus on energy efficiency. And that's only going to ramp up even more as, uh, you know, the price of solar is coming down. There's all these other positive developments. Now, it's by no means easy. Communities have to be involved at every stretch of the way. But on the one hand, we have renewables and energy efficiency. But what we don't have is hard limits on, for example, expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. So you can't be um, putting in new pipelines or putting in boilers when we need these homes and businesses and communities to be really focusing in on things like energy storage and energy efficiency and uh, solar panels on their roofs that's the way that's the direction that everything is going in but at the same time there still is an an, ex- an ongoing expansion of fossil fuel use that can't be ignored um just very briefly mm-hmm. i guess on the, on the funded and for on forever yeah. side mm-hmm. funded funded means that um again, the responsibilities on developed states to make sure that those who are further behind can uh, can take part in this transition as quickly as possible and are also uh, funded to um, make sure that they're protected from the worst impacts of climate change at the same time. So there's a huge focus in this COP on what's called the, the Loss and Damage Fund and a huge focus as well on funding for adaptations or dealing with the worst of and dealing and adapting with the worst effects of the climate crisis and you know forever means that it can't be half measures you can't say you're gonna for example um phase down cold use but then on the other hand say well we might um abate some of that cold mm. use we might use new technologies therefore it can continue into the future yeah. so that's, bit, the, bit that's like the overall project as
2: they, they said. Okay, Jerry. Look, yeah. thanks for taking our t- call. Many uh, thanks for joining us uh, this morning, for that matter. Jerry Machiavelli, head of policy with Friends of the Earth Ireland, uh, and uh, that's uh, in Dubai where Jerry is joining us from uh, this morning. Uh, thanks uh, to Margaret who uh, has been in touch with us, and she says, "Is there seventy thousand uh, attending COP twenty eight? If that is true, then they need to cop on. How did they all get there by bike? Do they swim?" Or walk? No, the majority flew thousands of miles on planes to get to a place to discuss the harmful emissions from fossil fuels uh, and what that's doing to the climate. How hypocritical is that? You couldn't make it up. Uh, these are the people who dictate to the rest of us about climate change, yet it's OK for them to hop onto planes to travel long distances to these summits? Have they never heard of Zoom calls? Is it a case of don't do as I do, but do as I say? And another question is, how much is it costing the taxpayer for Minister Ryan's carbon usage and whoever else went with him to lovely sunny Dubai? Thanks, Margaret, for your message, as always. Michael, Michael Reed
4: on, on LMFM FM.
2: The Seashaw leo Vratker will meet uh, with uh, the leaders of uh, the other 26 European countries on Thursday and Friday of uh, this week, ahead of uh, the EU Council Summit. Spain, Belgium, Ireland and Malta have written to the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, asking that there would be a serious debate on the conflict in Gaza and uh, that the EU would call for a lasting humanitarian ceasefire. Let's hear a little bit more about this. We're joined by Karen Coleman, uh, who is... Uh, Joining us uh, from uh, EU Radio News, uh, the editor of EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Good morning, Karen. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I take it there won't be much support for the call from the four countries which are are talking about credibility at this stage.
7: Yes, I mean, it was a very strongly worded letter that was uh, signed by the leaders of, as you said, Malta, Spain and Ireland and uh, Belgium, uh, reiterating very, uh, you know, calling for the uh, violence in Gaza to end for a permanent uh, ceasefire to come about um, so that the humanitarian situation, which is catastrophic in Gaza, can be addressed. But of course. Opinion is very divided, as we have seen within the EU on the Israeli Hamas conflict, with some supporting the ongoing Israel um, military action against the people of Gaza others of course against that and it is unlikely that there's going to be agreement on any one particular view unfortunately on this now what the four leaders were calling for is that the situation in gaza would be discussed at this summit um, that is going to be held thursday and friday but of course already scheduled for that was a serious debate on ukraine and its membership of the eu so we don't know really how much if any time will be given to the conflict um, and and whether indeed there will be any calls for humanitarian ceasefire.
2: Right, and what's happening uh, just continues to get worse. It, it, it. Uh, has been beyond belief, but every time uh, we think it can't get worse, it it does get worse, and it looks to uh, set to get a whole lot uh, worse than that. Uh, Again, uh, there's warnings from the United Nations of a catastrophe uh, in terms of human health as a result of disease uh, that is following in the wake of uh, destruction and death, and uh, similar warnings uh, coming from the World Health Organization as well. Oh,
7: it's unbelievable, Michael. I mean, the UN World Food Programme now, UNRWA, is saying that half the population of Gaza is starving. And I'm quoting directly from UNRWA this morning saying, hunger stalks everyone. And they're saying that now um, there are reports that people are dying of hunger and cold, as well as, of course, people uh, dying from the uh, bombardments and that the prices of food and essential goods are sky high. It's absolutely yeah. horrendous. And of course, now, as we know, the Israeli military are going in to bomb the southern parts of Gaza. Now, these were the areas that people initially were told to flee to from Gaza City, so go to the southern part, Han Yunus and Rafah, and areas like that. These places are now being bombarded. So there's nowhere safe for the people of Gaza to seek shelter in. It is absolutely Catastrophic. I mean, the notion that now, on top of people dying, mm. and nearly half of those are kids—about forty percent are children—that um, that in fact they're dying now, potentially of disease um, and and other um, ca- uh, you know horrendous ways of dying. It's absolutely appalling what mm. is happening there. And it's continuing and, and you look at it and you think, my God, is this just going to get worse and worse, which mm. at the moment appears to be the case.
2: It really does, doesn't it? Uh, and in, in Canyunas, uh, I think there's real concern, too, of civil order breaking down uh, because, as you say, people are starving. Uh, I was reading just, you know, the way sometimes one story touches you. Uh, but a, a man who hadn't eaten three for three days in Canyunas uh, begging for bread for his children. Uh, The upshot of that uh, type of experience is that people are losing it and there could be this breakdown in civil order and there is nowhere to go. Uh, There's concern as well that people will try to break out, if you like, and into Egypt.
7: But I don't see how they can get out there, Michael. I mean, those borders are very heavily manned, as as far as I'm aware. Mm. And it's very difficult for them to go. This is the trouble. The people in Gaza are trapped. They don't have anywhere else to go. And they're being driven further and further into a smaller part of the Gaza Strip, which itself is tiny. Um, And so they don't have anywhere else to escape. And I mean, are we going to stand by and watch these people die of starvation, die of epidemic diseases, as was um, raised, I think, by the UN Secretary General of um, bad water on top of actually dying of injuries that they have been sustaining. there, You know, a big number of the hospitals that were operating there now can barely operate, and some can't uh, can't actually attend to the people who have very bad injuries as a result of the bombardment. And then on top of it, of, of this situation in Gaza, and a point that was raised by the Taoiseach yesterday, and indeed in that letter signed by the four EU leaders, is is the trouble that is um, igniting in the West Bank. Now, Michal Martin spoke very strongly about the violence of extreme settlers there, and he's calling for sanctions and travel bans against those. But there is a lot of unrest and of course I think hundreds of people have been killed since October 7th in the West Bank as well and and the danger is that is going to flare up and, and there will be um, extreme um, violence and death on both sides, in both Gaza and the West Bank
2: Yeah, but these pleas uh, from uh, Tanisha and Taoiseach and others uh, as you say um, falling on deaf ears uh, and it, it's not just the deaf ears of uh, the European Council or the EU, for that matter, Karen. Uh, we've seen um, the United Nations Security Council this week fail to reach uh, agreement on a text that would call for a ceasefire.
7: Yes, and um, this was in response to the calls by the UN secretary General for humanitarian ceasefire. The United States is against that now we know today. Um, the General Assembly is, is voting on a draft resolution, and, and the language, I think, mirrors that that, was, um, that came from Antonio G- Guterres. But um, unfortunately, the U.S. Is, is, is very strongly backing Israel here. Um, and until the U.S. really calls for, a, demands for a resolution that calls for humanitarian ceasefire, unfortunately, we're unlikely to see that happen. Um, And and again, those views are mirrored by some EU countries. They very much support Israel in this. And it's not to say that countries like Ireland weren't appalled and do not think that the attacks on October 7th by Hamas were absolutely savage. Um, But unfortunately, the world is very divided. And I think until the U.S., Really changes its position and, and demands that a humanitarian ceasefire take place, and there is a resolution on that, um, then that will not stop Israel's bombardment of Gaza at the moment and its intent on trying to kill every Hamas operative, militant, terrorist, whatever way you want to describe them, in Gaza. You know, it's, it, it's very difficult to see how that is all going to end.
2: All right, well. Know that before it ends, there'll be uh, an awful lot more corpses and indeed many of uh, the dead, as has been the case up to now, most of uh, the dead have uh, been women, children and uh, the elderly. Uh, as is uh, the case uh, with those injured, as is uh, the case with those missing. Uh, And almost 18,000 people have lost their lives since uh, the bombardment of uh, the Gaza Strip started. Karen, thank you indeed for joining us today, as always. Karen Coleman is editor with EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations.
8: More than 17,000 people are reported to have died in Gaza, including... 7,000 children. And we don't know how many are buried under the rubble of their homes. More than 46,000 injuries have been reported. 1.9 million people have been displaced, almost the entire population of the Gaza Strip, and are looking for shelter anywhere they can
5: find it.
2: And that's uh, Director General of uh, the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanem Ghabriassas. And uh, if you have something on your mind today, uh, maybe you'd stop and think about this message from uh, the World Health Organization about Gaza as we go into Christmas.
8: But nowhere and no one is safe in
2: Gaza. That's just the way it is. As I say, that's uh, Dr Tedros speaking there in Geneva.
4: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh,
2: the Irish drinks industry has been looking at how it will grow over uh, the next number of years and has published a document, Pride of Place Policies for Growth of uh, the Irish Drinks Industry 2025 to 2030. We can hear some more about this now. Cormac Healy of uh, Drinks Ireland, the Director of Drinks Ireland, uh, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Cormac. Thanks uh, for taking the time to be with us on uh, the programme this morning. You obviously want growth uh, in your industry, uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, you believe this can be done uh, by enhancing what has already been a dramatic fall in consumption levels, uh, and that uh, that that could be driven uh, lower uh, again, H- how do you do both at the same time?
8: Okay, well, good morning, Michael, and, and thanks for having me on. Uh, as you say, our policy priorities uh, that we're setting out for the for the sector for the uh, the next half of the decade really uh, are about growth uh, and and development of the sector. Uh, our exports are hugely important. I mean, we, we export probably in c- certain categories 95% of what we produce. So we have set out a series of recommendations around exports and support for exports, et cetera, and investment in the sector, on the one hand, to drive business and its economic contribution. And equally then, on the other side, where you look at government regulation around alcohol, et cetera, we do believe that the government now needs to take cognizance of the fact that our consumption levels have fallen significantly, drinking patterns are differently, and therefore, you know, alcohol-related policy needs to modernize. We, we, we obviously need to continue to work on education and awareness, but I think, you know, we, we can ease off on some of the more restrictive regulation that simply impacts on the vast majority of, mo- of, of moderate produ- uh, consumers.
2: We've done that job. Is that your argument?
8: Well, I think you can. You, you, you're never, you're never done. To 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 some extent, I think. Firstly, I mean, we have, we we need to move on from the old stereotypes, Michael. I think, uh, yeah. and a lot of policy might have been based on that. There has been a thirty percent drop in alcohol consumption in Ireland over the last two decades. Uh, younger consumers, Gen Z in particular, are driving that in terms of a different attitude towards alcohol. But we're seeing it across all age groups, and I think, you know, we we should continue. to to educate uh, and and raise awareness. Uh, But I don't think that we need the kind of restrictive uh, regulation that we have seen in the past Uh, and recognize that a huge amount of progress has been made for consumers want to enjoy a drink. We have new innovations, for example, like the the growth in the the zero alcohol category, which is really Mm. uh, seeing phenomenal growth in recent years. And that's that's consumers already ahead, if you like, of, of regulation or of policy. Uh, and opting for those choices that allow them to enjoy a drink and, and do so in moderation.
4: Okay,
2: Your industry has been uh, accused of bypassing advertising regulation uh, by advertising 0% products.
8: Yeah, well, I, I totally disagree with that because I think the actual growth in the sale of the products, uh, consumers' reaction to them uh, is proof that there is demand there and consumers are, are opting for them. Uh, and also i think you see phenomenal investment uh, in the pr- production of of these high quality zero zero offerings and alternatives so i mean it's a real market uh, and it's really industry following uh, consumer perception consumer demand uh, and interest in these products uh, rather than anything else that's been suggested
2: all right and when you talk about being less restrictive uh, what what should we be doing should we uh, move to round-the-clock licensing uh, and that type of, of uh, thing, or making alcohol available in more outlets.
8: Yeah, well, I think I mean that's 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 one area around, uh, the, and there's been a lot of discussion around the the legislation that government is looking at on sale of alcohol. And there is a modernisation of licensing, uh, etc., and, and opening hours uh, required, and bringing it more into line with our European counterparts. After all, I mean. You know, when I go back to the consumption levels, I mean, the, the recent OECD report that was produced shows that consumption in Ireland per capita is now below the US, the UK, and 18 other European member states. So hmm. things have changed. Even our own Healthy Ireland survey that came out a week or two ago uh, is is showing consumption falling, uh, even lower binge drinking. So I think, you know, a, a moderation. In do we need to, to do we
2: do we need well. to redefine what binge drinking is? Well, I I think we
8: need to continue. I mean, consumers are are very, uh, I think, aware and conscious of how they drink and they are changing Mm. how they drink. Most uh, people
2: aren't aware of what binge drinking is. Uh, Do you believe that that's because the guidelines around binge drinking are um, really not realistic?
8: Well, I, I I don't know is the guidelines around it. I mean, but binge drinking is is considered as as uh,
2: oh, the way of measure standard, it. Yeah, yeah, six standard drinks yeah. Yeah.
8: in uh, in uh, three in, uh, pints. In One occasion, yeah. which is which is three pints, and and people can perhaps make up their own mind.
2: On, on um, one occasion, you know, in, uh, in, in one month. Uh, on one occasion, I think they
8: the it is uh, yeah. six standard drinks, mm. which is three pints on, yeah. on one on one
2: occasion. What What are your thoughts I on mean, that?
8: Well, I mean, my thoughts are that our overall consumption is dropping. Our, even our, our statistics around uh, binge drinking as it is defined mm. are also showing a reduction. OK, but, but we continue, we continue to
2: binge drink uh, and we continue to have problems with liver disease. Liver disease uh, is on the rise, isn't it?
8: But, but how you deal with, with, uh, with, with this is through education and awareness, Michael, rather than necessarily restrictive regulation and banning X, Y or Z. Uh, you know, so so I think in our overall approach on this, I mean, what we've said is yes, there is a role here. We we do have to have alcohol related policy. Nobody is questioning that, uh, but it's how we approach it and take the new narrative, if you like, where recognise that consumption has fallen, but also recognise that the, the drinks sector in Ireland is a major export powerhouse. It, it exported two billion in in uh, exports last year. It's, it's in every county of Ireland, it's rural, it's urban, it's north and south, even even in the county louth there's five or six major drinks operations that are, are, are producing exports and employment. I mean, from, from, you know, Great Northern, Cooley, Terra, you know, and Distillery, you have so many up in, even in just that region. It is a serious economic contributor as well. And there's many things around that that we want government to Continue to work on and support and allow the industry to continue to contribute.
2: Okay, uh, and uh, does that uh, include uh, looking at uh, the taxes uh, that are uh, on alcohol? It's far more expensive uh, to drink in this country than uh, in most European countries, and an awful lot of what we pay for alcohol goes to the government, doesn't it?
8: Yes, indeed, and, and we have, you know, we we have continuously, I suppose. Uh, focused attention on the level of excise uh, that is on alcohol here in Ireland. We are at the really at the upper end of the scale in terms of our European counterparts, right up there, I think third overall and first on some of the categories. So, you know, there is, I mean, we've constantly focused that there is a need to look at the level of, of excise and, and to bring us more in line with, with EU norms. Uh, rather than being on the extreme. And I mean, yes, I mean, between excise and uh, and vast, I think the, the industry contributes about 2.6 billion uh, in, in revenue just on, on that taxation front, let alone but it does on exports or employment,
2: and and, and purchasing of raw materials. Okay, Uh, I'm sure, Cormac, uh, you've been watching uh, the reports from COP28 and uh, that interaction that Sultan Ahmad al-Jabbar had with former President Mary Robinson and him saying that there is no science that proves uh, that the use of fossil fuels Uh, leads to carbon uh, emissions. Some would say that you sound a a little bit like Al Jabbar today, going against all of uh, the public health uh, advice when it comes to alcohol, that we should sell alcohol in fewer paces for fewer hours of uh, the day at the highest rate price possible to deter people from drinking, uh, to clamp down on advertising of any description, whether it's for Full alcohol or zero percent alcohol, as uh, the case may be, because of uh, the illness, the disease, uh, the liver disease, uh, and indeed the deaths uh, that are, are caused by overconsumption of alcohol. No, I,
8: my, I, I think Michael that's I mean, uh, well, you a, hear it all a, the time. Really, an exaggeration. I mean, I mean, I think what I've said already is that I mean, uh, well, number one, people do enjoy a drink. Your listeners, I'm sure, many of them enjoy a drink. What is happening in Ireland is that. Uh, we are drinking less. We are drinking better. Uh, consumption has fallen by 30%. And what we're saying in that context is that we don't need to base everything around the old stereotypes. Many of what you have have, have run through there. Yes, we have to have a responsible approach, uh, and that's absolutely encouraged. And we work on education and awareness. I think that's what we're saying in a very kind of balanced approach on policy and also then to reflect on the businesses themselves that are operating throughout the country and and creating jobs and exports and how we can support that continued uh, contribution that they make.
2: Alright, uh, well as you say you're looking forward to how to grow the industry between now and the end of uh, the decade and thank you indeed for joining us Kirk on well. the programme this morning. Cormac Keeley, Drinks Ireland Director. My
4: Michael Reed on LMFM I now as
2: is usual around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Garda Laura Rudden joins us from our D Garda station for this week's report. And we're going to begin with an incident uh, that uh, occurred in Drogheda. Uh, this is uh, towards the end of August. Uh, an incident Gardaí are describing as serious and sensitive.
6: Good morning, Michael. Yes, this incident is that it happened a while ago back on the, Sunday, the 28th of August, and um, and it happened between the hours of one a.m. and two thirty a.m. at Grove Hill in at County, Ledge. I know it's very, it's quite a time, long time ago, but it is a very serious and sensitive incident. So, if anyone was in the area at that time, the Grove Hill area of Droitwich, and may have seen this, they, it probably would have stuck in their minds. So, you are looking for anyone who would be able to assist them with this investigation, especially any witnesses, um, and if. Any of the mem- members of the public have any information, we'd urge them to contact Draw at a guard station mm. on 041 987 4200 or the Guard Confidential Line on 1800 666 111.
2: And uh, I suppose most people would uh, have thought, if uh, uh, they did see something uh, at the time, that that was Saturday night, Sunday morning, uh, between 1 and half, 2 in the morning. Very sensitive incident if uh, somebody saw. Uh, that uh, in and around Grove Hill in Drogheda uh, as you say, uh, hopefully they'll make contact uh, with uh, the local guards Uh, We're going uh, to uh, RD now uh, and uh, some dangerous driving that are investigating. This happened on uh, the 8th of December
5: Yes
6: Michael, this incident just happened on Friday gone by the 8th of December and it happened around 8.30pm in the evening so it's, it's, the guards in our guard Station were, were patrolling around Tallinnstown County Loud when they saw a suspicious vehicle, which is a black VW Golf, registration number 04KE4133. That's a black VW Golf, 04KE4133. They tried to indicate for this vehicle to stop, but it failed to do so, and it took off at speed from them. It undertook a number of vehicles on the Hard Shoulder on the N-33 in RD, which is also known as the link road between RD and the M1 motorway at Junction 14. Verity subsequently lost sight of the vehicle. However, they later received a report of a burglary in the area in which the vehicle was seen leaving. They believe that it is linked to to this burglary. So if anyone was in the Tallamstown area on Friday evening around half six, between six and half six, or indeed seen this vehicle driving dangerously on the N33 or or the motorway and may have dash cam footage, we'd urge you to contact RD Garda station uh, on 041 685 3222 or the Garda confidential line on 1800 666 111 or indeed their own local station.
2: Okay, the next crime that you're reporting on and hoping how oh, somebody will be able to uh, assist you with happened on Saturday when there should have been nothing other than celebration at darver castle because a wedding was underway unfortunately one of uh, the guests came upon an opportunistic thief
6: yes and um, like a very strange incident that occurred just there started to go by and he said, As you said at darver castle um a wedding guest was arrived at the castle and in the car park was approached by a male who said he was a, a porter and would bring her bag into the castle for her However, he took the bags and placed them in his own vehicle, which was a black Ford Cougar, registration number 10LS879. He then took these bags and went to leave the the castle grounds. He did discard of two of the bags before leaving, but still had one bag in his possession. The male was described as being in his 40s, at, at around 40 or 50 years of age, wearing dark clothing and medium build. Again, I just want to emphasize that that vehicle and the vehicle mentioned previously are both believed to be on um, cloned registration plate. So, the registered owners of the vehicles are not the ones that we're looking to speak to. But so if anyone has seen anyone seen this mail, were at that wedding, and may have been approached by this mail before they went into the wedding, or have seen that vehicle around the area, it's a black Ford Cougar, registration number 10LS879. We'd ask you to contact Early Guard Station on 041. 685-3222 or the a Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111 or indeed their own local station as I many guests, if there are the guests that may have seen them, they may have gone back to their own local okay. area.
2: Alright, uh, next to a robbery at a pharmacy in Dunboyne on Sunday evening.
6: Yes, this just happened on Sunday gone by as uh, it was at 9.30 a.m. where two males in dark clothing with balaclavas and holding a wheel brace entered your local pharmacy in Dumbine demanding cash and tablets. The panic alarm was set off by a member of staff and the was left with just a small amount of cash and some tablets. The staff member then followed the suspects to their car and obtained a registration place. The vehicle which was involved was a grey opal Saloon, registration number 141G 986. That's a grey opal Saloon, 141G 986. This vehicle was later discovered uh, in the Larkspan area and was a stolen vehicle. But again, Dumbine Guardier speaking, any members of the public may have seen this robbery occur, or may have seen this vehicle around the Dumbine area and have dash dashcam footage, please contact Dumbine Guard stations on 04- 01 825 2211 or their local guard station or again the Guarded Confidential Line at 1800 666 111.
2: Okay, we'll take people back pretty much a, a, a week ago in time, uh, this day week, between 10 and 11 in the morning, and some concern uh, about a suspicious vehicle in County Meath.
6: Yeah, Guardian uh, Trim, Guardian Station, are investigating this report. of a blue car with a number of male occupants which were seen acting very suspiciously last Tuesday morning between 10am and 11am in the Baconstown and Ratmaline areas. So Guardian Trim's or appealing to anyone who may install this car or the male's travelling in it to contact Trim Guard Station on 046 948 1540. That's 046 948 1540. With regard to confidential line at 1800 666
5: 111. Okay.
6: See if any local residents or businesses have CCTV or again motors to the dashcam footage. to please contact Trim Guard Station.
2: Okay. Uh, before you leave us uh, some uh, advice, uh, some prevention uh, advice uh, for people, particularly for motorists.
6: Yes. December, unfortunately, is a peak month for tests from vehicles, from cars. So we're just urging everyone to please make sure that they secure all their, their doors, close all their windows and set their car alarm every, every time they park up and to double check this uh, before you go inside take any valuable property with you and do not leave any property on view inside your car always park in a well lit and secure area and if anything is ever stolen from your vehicle to report this to the guardie and if it is in a car park or that to notify the car park attendants or security staff just want everyone to be a bit more vigilant this time of year also with their own property as well when they're out and about to not leave their mobile phones unattended and to make sure that it's placed in a secure pocket, a closed handbag, keep all their purses secure and carry wallets uh, inside their pockets. And just also be very careful when using APM or other car services to make sure you cover your PIN at all times.
2: Okay, very good thank you indeed uh, we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk next Tuesday around the same time with thanks today to Garda Laura Rudden of RD Garda station before we go some messages for you one from Tom in Dundalk who says just a query how do the authorities in Northern Ireland manage and house the unfortunate Ukrainian refugees and other asylum seekers they seem to be managing a lot better than we are in the Public, maybe some of your Sinn Fein guests could advise on this. Uh, we'd Anthony in R D. Um, number of messages I think on the matter of your first interview of the day, with Sinn Fein, when you try to get honest, intelligent own to reassure your troublesome racist listeners, who keep asking awkward questions about the allocation of housing numbers that supposedly. There are two different types of houses. One type will only let in migrants and refugees and the other will only let in Irish homeless people. Uh, simply ridiculous contention devised by the government and now adopted by almost all in the political and media business to try and keep a lid on Irish anger. And, of course, it is Ono Brin. It's in his interest uh, to blame the government for the lack of the Irish houses. He has his eye on the next election, so everything is going to be the government's fault. A house is a house is a house. It doesn't know or care who's coming in the door. Quite honestly, Michael, I think uh, the people argument is all played out, Anthony Nardi, Thanks, Anthony. Um, I'm not sure why people are so determined uh, to win an argument, even uh, if uh, they're being told black is white but thank you. Um, Colin Morrington says, Michael, I wonder how many of the people who welcomed Joe Biden with open arms to our local area feel now as they watch the U.S. back to genocide of the Palestinian people. The U.S.-Israeli murder coalition is absolutely disgusting. It's exactly what happened in Warsaw. Uh, during World War II. Can the Jewish people not see that? Thank you, Colb. That's the final word for today. Our time has run out on us once again. Maggie McGuire researched. Paul was in the control tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Goodbye.
3: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.